0: Sally. Good morning. Excited to be back in Acts with you all. Uh intention is to finish chapter one. There's a lot to cover here. Uh I always hope uh that as we walk through scripture, I uh Some of what we observe prompts profitable discussion at the lunch table with spouse or friend or children, Uh, I I sort of feel like uh, probably this text, as much as any text, can prompt a lot of uh, interesting conversations, maybe not all profitable, but uh, as we walk through the text this morning, uh, I want to especially, address some of what's going on in this text. Uh, I think it's important for us to understand, uh, sort of tease up things that are going to happen later in the book, uh, but also maybe and drop a couple suggestions on how to, to turn a question towards uh, more profitable soil. Uh, so, let's uh, read the text together this morning, and then we'll pray. Uh, <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, I should say, if you weren't with us last week, kind of opened with the ascension of Jesus Christ, and uh, the 12, or the 11, excuse me, uh, see Jesus ascend on a cloud, and then two angels charge them to to get to work. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up? Jesus has given them a command, and then verse 12 opens. Then they return to Jerusalem. and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Acheldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So, one of the men who had a, have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for the grace that you have given us in Christ, that you have redeemed us uh, unto yourself, God. that you are forming us into a people, your people, the bride of Christ. And God, we pray that as we worship together this morning, you would continue to draw us together as a body that we may uh, be made, made more, fir- uh, more clearly in his image, more Uh, like Christ in all respects. And God, we pray that as we turn to your word now, you would further renew our minds and help us to see the wisdom of your word, help our hearts to submit and and use use our time together by the power of your spirit uh, to propel us to still greater obedience as worship for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So, when 12 uh, opens, uh, excuse me. Oh, sorry, Dan. There we go. When, my bad. Uh, when 12 opens uh, Luke turns our attention then you know what happens next and as you recall they were uh, standing uh, Luke says at one point near Bethany or now he says the Mount of Olives uh, they're out uh, not far from Jerusalem the angels appear at the site of the ascension and say why are you standing here right Jesus has given you a command and then as verse 12 opens, we find that immediately they obey. They retreat from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, which is, he says, a Sabbath day journey, which is a measure of distance for a Jew, right? So, a Sabbath day journey is 2,000 cubits, or three quarters of a mile, more or less, right? So, they uh, return to Jerusalem, and as they get there, Luke says, they went back to the upper room, and we don't know exactly which upper room he's talking about. Uh, he could be talking about the upper room where there was the Last Supper. He could be talking about the upper room where they witnessed uh, the resurrected Christ. Uh, or these. Uh, it could be a separate room. Or they could all be the same room. Like we, we don't really know, but they go back presumably to a place that is familiar to them, uh, where they are now staying. and he reminds us uh, of who is in the room. He lists 11. And the 11 that he lists are the same guys that he had listed in chapter, Luke chapter six initially. Uh, he gives a list of 12 in Luke chapter six. Well, Judas is there and not in this list. Uh, but then Jesus, they're listed and then commissioned to go out. And as the narrative has uh, broke, right, they have again been commissioned, and again we see a list of names, yet there is one name conspicuously missing, Judas Iscariot, right? This, this list is the same list that we saw in a, a slightly different order. If you're a, a person that's always looking at cross-references and comparing lists to other lists, you'll note that uh, Judas, the son of James, isn't always listed. Sometimes Thaddeus is listed. These two are the same guy. As you can imagine, uh, if your name was Judas and you were not that Judas, but you were one of the disciples, you would probably prefer your nickname as well. Uh, Thaddeus, or Judas, the son of James, uh, rounds out the list, and Judas Iscariot is missing. And that's kind of the pretext for everything that's happened next, but as Luke will often do, before he steps into what's next, he gives us a bit of a summary. He says that they were all together with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Uh, There's probably a few things worth noting, that the eleven, the disciples, are there with the women. These are the women presumably who had been with jesus essentially from the beginning In luke 8 luke told us that these women were alongside jesus ministering with him and to him he actually adds in luke 8 that they were helping financially support jesus's ministry they were there through to the end, like on his march to jerusalem they were there at a distance at the crucifixion luke tells us they were some of the first witnesses of the resurrected christ though these women aren't named specifically uh they are an essential uh aspect of jesus's ministry they've been there the whole time and they are there with the disciples in the beginning and alongside of uh these women uh, is the woman mary uh mary the mother of jesus and while we're here i i think i would like to point out uh that Mary, uh, Mary is there with all the rest of them. Mary isn't uh, doing something unique. She's alongside the other women. She's alongside the disciples. They are all together with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. She's not being prayed to. She's not interceding on behalf of the other people in the room. She is simply another sinner in need of the grace of Christ, and she is here in this list. And likewise, uh, the antecedent of his is Jesus. These are Jesus's half-brothers, Simeon, uh, Joseph, uh, Judas, or we call him Jude. He wrote the book of Jude. And then, of course, James. Uh, James is going to become a very prominent figure in this book, in the Jerusalem church, and then ultimately writes the book that we know as James. Jude and James both uh, have instrumental roles in the early church and interestingly the last time we really ran into these guys in the gospels uh they reject jesus they don't think jesus is who he says he is and if if you have a brother uh and your brother was telling you that he was god you can imagine how you would react to that and i imagine that's somewhat how they reacted to jesus saying that he was god and we don't really know how these guys Came to believe, other than that, in First Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that the resurrected Christ appeared to James. And so, you know, if your brother had been telling you, "Hey, I'm that Messiah guy for a long time," and you know you're not, uh, but then you saw him resurrected from the dead, maybe at that point that's what triggered belief in James's heart. But uh, James or Jesus's brothers are now there with everybody that. Uh, They are all together and more important than who is in the room, uh, though that's interesting to note, I think. And one more contextual note, I think, that, that is worth making. If Mary had been more than one of the people in the room at this point, I think it's highly likely that she would be mentioned somewhere else in the book. Well, Mary is blessed. Uh absolutely blessed and a remarkable woman this is the last time that we are going to see mary in the new testament she's not going to be mentioned again in acts or elsewhere Uh, these people all of these people with the 11 are in the upper room and with one accord devoting themselves to prayer jesus had given them a very command clear command to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, but to wait for the coming of the Spirit in Jerusalem. They immediately obey Jesus' command after his ascension. They go to wait in Jerusalem. And while they know that the Spirit is coming, as Jesus promised, in fact, as the Father promises, Jesus says, still they devote themselves to prayer. They are of one mind, giving themselves to the beseeching of God's favor. And I think that that is a lofty goal. that uh, a group of christians with one mind devote themselves to prayer to really devote themselves to prayer the way that this church is doing and we're going to see essentially this phrase or something like this phrase several times through the first half of the book of acts that they are together they are unified and they are giving themselves to prayer and uh, we are also going to see the church in acts uh behold the absolute unmistakable moving of the hand of god for the building of the church and i would suggest to you that those two things are hand in hand that uh that what happens through the church is not unrelated to the fact that they are of one mind committed to the advance of the gospel and absolutely in prayer expressing their dependence on god that that every church should absolutely emulate the state of the disciples in these early days even before they had the spirit in that we should be absolutely committed with one mind and of one will to the advance of the gospel and clearly demonstrating that we know that our our effectiveness any effectiveness that we can have is absolutely a gift of God in that regard. And so, as these people are giving themselves over to prayer, waiting for the coming Spirit, which is how chapter 2 is going to open, uh, Peter stands up recognizing that there's one thing that needs to happen before the Spirit comes. And we'll see through the book, uh, Peter kind of take a role as a spokesman among the twelve, that Peter's going to stand up frequently. He will again at Pentecost, Uh, but Luke inserts a little side note just as he's introducing Peter's speech that there were about 120 people in the room, right? So uh, the 11 plus Jesus's family plus the women who had been following Jesus, and there's only 90 or 100 other people, and uh, that's not a huge group. I think Luke probably includes that number. Uh, It's a significant number for a Jew. That's enough to establish a local Sanhedrin, right? So he's essentially saying, well, it's a small band, but it's a big enough band that Jews would recognize it as a a local group of believers gathered together. But I think uh, if we step back a little bit and think about where Acts is going to go, it is absolutely incredible and clearly the working of the Holy Spirit that a group of 120 is pretty quickly going to become a group of thousands that uh god is absolutely a god who specializes in taking things that people account as little and making them much and that's absolutely what he does in the book of acts he takes uh, a small group of people and very quickly uh, grows it to something far greater Uh, in fact by the end of the book of acts the fruit of this early ministry will have carried the gospel all the way to Rome. But uh, Peter begins, uh, brothers, the scripture has to be fulfilled or had to be fulfilled, right? And so he's going to say that twice, once essentially in present and once in the past. And he's going to look at, we're going to say two different psalms. He'll look at uh, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, thinking about Judas, and I think uh, he's probably accomplishing at least two things uh, as he's giving this speech to them. Uh, if you think back to the end of the Book of Luke and Luke and everything that these people had experienced in the previous month, like any one of the things that they had experienced, would be the kind of life event that like shakes you up to the point that you kind of rethink things right like uh i mean they'd gone through jesus's public ministry but then like one of them judas betrays jesus which as they write about it you know it kind of becomes clear like they all have the like hindsight is 2020 moment like we should have seen that about judas but none of them saw it coming and uh judas betrays jesus then there's a passion week, and then you bury the guy that you think is the Messiah and had spent three years following, and then somehow he ascends from the dead, and he's like sitting there next to you. A person that was dead is sitting there next to you eating fish with you. Like, all these things are like shake you up a bit type of things. Like, any one of them would kind of be like identity crisis. Maybe I don't really understand how the world works sort of things but it's like thing after thing after thing is happening for all these people and the guy that they had been following for three years who had called the shots for three years is now gone and even when Jesus was in the room they were arguing about okay but yeah like who's number two like who's who's in charge here I mean like Jesus sure but like I mean if Jesus isn't in the picture then which one of us, right? And it would be pretty natural for this community to have something of a identity crisis with respect to leadership. Like, so who is in charge? Like, yeah, there, there is the 12, or there was the 12, but one of them is literally the one who sold out Jesus. Maybe we should just scrap the 12 because, like, obviously they're kind of a shaky group. Like, what, what's going on here? And uh, Peter stands up to give this speech and reminds absolutely everyone in the room that uh, Judas was the one who betrayed them. But Judas's betrayal was not a shock to Jesus Christ. Judas didn't betray Jesus and Jesus get caught off guard or think, "Oh no, now my plan is not going to work, but Judas's betrayal of Jesus, Peter reminds them, was Jesus's plan? from the beginning, that Judas's betrayal ends up being the thing that allows Jesus to do what he intends to do on the cross, that, that while they might be kind of in disbelief about the way everything's played out, that they should know that Jesus absolutely knew what was going to happen. And not only did Jesus know that Judas was going to betray him a, a week before it happened, God knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus at the time of David, Peter says. David spoke about this, that none of this is coming out of left field for God. None of this is shaking God's plan, that we can absolutely walk in confidence knowing that as crazy as this all seems to us, it is definitely happening according to the counsel of God. Yet, Judas was numbered among us and allotted his share in ministry. And while he doesn't explicitly say it was Jesus who numbered him among us and Jesus who gave him a share in ministry, uh, it's it's very much implicit, right? The, the disciples didn't call the disciples, Jesus called the disciples. And so as Jesus called Judas in, as Jesus allotted Judas a share in the ministry, uh, Peter is is grounding them to remember, uh, you know, not only can we look at our circumstances with confidence because God has known about them from the beginning, but also remember uh, that it was God who set all of this in motion, right? The disciples weren't uh, mistakenly choosing other disciples, but it was God who chose Judas according to his purposes. And, at that point, uh, he makes a little bit of an aside, and I think it's important that we remember that Ru- Luke is writing to Theophilus. Theophilus doesn't have probably all of the knowledge that most Jews would have, and certainly locals of Jerusalem at this point. And so he kind of fills in some details that I think make it very helpful to understand, first, why they think Judas needs to be replaced, and number two, why no one is later replaced when they die, right like. Uh, set up some context here, and his his description of what happens to Judas is gruesome. I mean, it's gruesome, and I think there's Luke's immediate point, but then there's a point that I would also like to make. Uh, Luke's I think immediate point, and the point he's going to make again and again: Ananias, and Sapphira. Simon Magnus, everybody else through the narrative of Acts that openly stands in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to face the judgment of God, right? Like a theme through the book is clearly uh, when you stand in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are risking your life. Uh, But uh, not just that. I'd also like to say at this point, If we read what Luke says here, and we read what Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 27, like they and on first read, do not seem like the same account, right? Uh, and actually, I've I'm, I've been through this one a lot. Uh, some of, some of you probably remember. The last four or five years, I've asked my seniors to, uh, not my octogenarians, my high school seniors. I don't, I don't assign 80-year-olds papers, uh, but I've asked my high school seniors, uh, why don't you Google for me what is the absolute uh, most terrifying, worldview-shattering Bible contradiction that you can find? Like, I want you to shake my faith as a pastor. Like, find the worst Bible contradiction and uh, share it with me. Uh, and so they do, and okay, now take some time, take a day, and resolve it. like read what you can read online, or here's a few books, like do your best to resolve it, uh, but remember you know you don't have any theological training, you don't know Greek, you don 't know Hebrew, maybe you're not all that familiar with the Bible, uh, and also, I typically point out after the fact in a, at any given point, you probably only give fifty percent of your maximum effort on any assignment. Uh, So, right, like, keep all that in mind, but if you get stuck, if you can't explain the contradiction away in a rational way that an unbeliever would say, oh, okay, that makes sense, then I'll come in and I'll help you with it, Um, and maybe maybe I'll get stuck too, we'll just see what happens. And every time they Google it, they come to the same sites, 101 worst Bible contradictions or whatever, and uh, this is always at the top of a list right, that Matthew and Luke are irreconcilable, uh, where Luke tells us that he bought the field uh, with the money that he got, and then he burst open and his bowels gushed out. Matthew tells us that he goes back to the temple, uh, he throws the 30 pieces of silver at the high priest, the high priests say, uh, oh, yeah, that, we can't take that money back, and uh, and Judas goes and hangs himself, right? Two different accounts of what's happening. And I think uh, as I ask students to do this, typically with minimal effort, find pretty quickly that there are a couple very good ways to reconcile these passages, uh, the, the details that differ between Matthew's account and Luke's account. And I bring that up now because I think that it behooves us as a church, especially as we endeavor together to train up the next generation in the Lord to know that we absolutely and with utter confidence can assert that the bible is without contradiction right if a if a bunch of people who are putting forth half effort with no training whatsoever can find the worst contradictions that there are in the bible and then in 15 minutes very easily resolve them like how much more so can we as a church right that we do not we do not have to be afraid of what the world is throwing at the church. Right? We can rest confidently in the Word of God as the truth of God. We don't have to defend the Bible. We have to let the Bible loose. It is our power for ministry. God speaks to us through His Word, and we should train our, our children that they can absolutely trust the Word of God as the revealed truth of God, right? And to that end, as you, I, I would encourage you to talk to your kids about this today. Talk to your spouse about it today. I would suggest to you that, uh, you know, this probably is uh, one of the worst. But very simply, uh, when Matthew relates uh, what happens, he gives a few details, I think, that make it pretty clear what's really happening here. Uh, when Judas goes back to the temple to throw the money at the priests, the priest's response is, we cannot take this money into the temple treasury, it's blood money, right? They're, they're not going to let it go into the temple, which I think it's the height of irony that these guys were happy to pay Jesus a betrayer out of the temple treasury, but they won't take that money back into the temple treasury. That's not really the point, though. The point is, they know that they can't take the money back into the treasury since it was used to buy the blood of an innocent man, And so, they decide, ultimately, that they're going to buy a place so they can bury foreigners. And so, they end up buying this field, and in their minds, they didn't buy the field. They were Judas's agents, and Judas bought the field. Like, it's not their money. They don't have anything to do with it. They're just acting on Judas's behalf to buy this field, and then Judas, I guess they're assuming, will uh, want foreigners buried there for some reason. Uh, But Judas uh luke says acquires the field and presumably with the high priests as his agents with the 30 pieces of silver and then where matthew says uh he hung himself luke tells us that he fell headlong and so on and so forth now uh one of two things i think happened the, number one uh he could have tried to hang himself uh, and in his depression and fit, like, it didn't do a great job. Bought too small a rope or picked a bad tree, and the branch snapped or the rope broke. And while we don't know exactly where Akeldama is, we know the geography, lo, the location well enough to know there are lots of rocky crags, lots of cliffs over sharp rocks that the, the branch rope or the rope broke or whatever, and he fell. And while he didn't, uh, he tried to hang himself, what actually killed him was the fall. Uh, Or, I think it's equally possible, and maybe even preferable, uh, the the Greek here that the ESV translates falling headlong is, could mean falling headlong, like that he fell headfirst. It could also mean, like, swelling up, basically. And so, the reconciliation, I think, at that point is, that he did, in fact, hang himself. And then uh, as his body sat there in the Judean sun, uh, it started to bloat. And eventually either the rope broke or the branch broke or somebody decided to cut him down. And his bloated corpse fell to the ground and burst open. But in either case, uh, Luke wants us to know that Judas is dead. And because of Judas's infamy, uh, that place becomes infamous. Celdamos uh, is Aramaic for field of blood. I'm filling in Theophilus in on why it gets that name. Uh, and it, it is the field of blood. It is the field that uh, Judas's betrayal of Jesus' blood uh, bought, and Judas's blood ends up being spilled there. But uh, as Luke makes this aside, he then uh, he returns to Peter's speech to tell us uh, that in Psalms, we read Psalm 69, may his camp become desolate and let there be no place to dwell in it. And then in Psalm 109, let another take his office. So in that first quotation, he's saying that had been fulfilled, that Judas's camp has become desolate. The story about Akeldama is that, that scripture was being fulfilled. Uh, and then everything that happens next, 21 through 26, is going to be the fulfillment of uh, let another take his office, right? That they understand that Judas needs to be replaced, and at that point, I think uh, it's important for us to understand a few things about what's happening here. Uh, number one, I think it's worth noting that uh, Peter seems radically different than the Peter we'd seen a few chapters ago, and at the end of Luke, where Peter at the end of Luke kind of seems like he. He doesn't quite get everything that's going on. Peter here seems absolutely confident, and the difference in his approach seems to be he's interpreting everything that he's experiencing now through the lens of Scripture. He didn't understand really how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises at the end of the Gospel, but as Acts opens, he's seeing his circumstances through the Word of God, And uh, number two, I think it's important that we understand uh, Peter seeing these as things that were to be fulfilled once, right? This is one of the texts that some people misunderstand and they make much out of what is simply a historical event. Judas wasn't replaced because Judas died. Judas is replaced because he's an apostate he chose to walk away from jesus christ and as he left the apostolic office he is replaced ultimately by matthias we're going to read but an apostolic office doesn't become vacant and need to be fulfilled just because somebody dies right like that that's not how it works in acts chapter 12 when james dies they don't they don't find a replacement for james they understand that a faithful apostle who dies in his office is that apostle presumably for all eternity they understand jesus to have said that the 12 apostles are going to have a role in the judging of the 12 tribes of israel and if the apostolic office were replaced you'd have to ask Well, which apostle is it that is going to be judging the 12 tribes right? that they understand jesus i think saw uh, the 12 apostles, or 12 tribes, as a reiteration of his claim first over the nation of Israel. That before the gospel goes out to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, in the appointing of 12 apostles, he's making it clear that Israel is mine. And so they see the appointment of an apostle as an important first step even before the coming of the Holy Spirit. There needs to be 12 apostles, but we should not take this as a pattern to be replicated. If I ever start telling you that I am a capital A apostle, fire me. Like, that uh, these guys are not to be replaced. They are singular and foundational in the establishment of the church. And so, Peter lays out criteria for this replacement, uh, he is to be a person who has accompanied us from the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Right? That is the baptism of John in the Jordan. So, somebody who's been alongside of us the whole time since John baptized Jesus, and not just that, but also somebody who actually witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, somebody who saw Jesus with their own eyes and can personally testify to have seen the risen Lord jesus i would say that while these two criteria uh having witnessed jesus's public ministry and uh having witnessed the resurrected jesus christ are essentially the two criteria of uh apostleship that uh 24 and following i would say you could add a third criteria and that is chosen by god while they're gonna put forward a couple of candidates they ultimately leave the decision up to god likewise when Paul, who would be the 13th apostle to the Gentiles, becomes an apostle, he only meets two of these criteria. He's seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and he has been chosen by God on the Damascus Road, but he was not with Jesus in his public ministry. Paul is, a, he calls himself an apostle untimely born, right? He is an apostle and he has the authority of an apostle, but he's unlike these other apostles in that he doesn't fit the criteria that they made, and throughout his ministry, he is constantly submitting himself to these 12, uh, uh, not individually, like he confronts Peter, but uh, corporately, he goes to Jerusalem, he presents his gospel, they affirm the gospel that he's preaching, right? We see through the book of Galatians, or actually in most of Paul's epistles, Paul constantly checking his apostolic authority against the uh, other apostles in Jerusalem. He's constantly laboring to establish uh, his reputation as an apostle, and in some sense he's an apostle exactly like these guys in that God used him to build the church, but God used Paul to build the church among the Gentiles, where these 12 are the apostles of The Jerusalem church and many of them end up going out in missionary endeavors but their first call is to Jerusalem and knowing that they want to find another they put forward two people the guy with many nicknames uh, Joseph son of the Sabbath who is also in Latin called justice or Matthias Matthias is probably a nickname his his name would be Mattathias uh, like gift of God Uh, And so they set forward two candidates as apostolic replacements, and uh, then they pray together. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take this place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own way. right, so as I said, they put the decision clearly in the Lord's hands. They want God to choose uh which of these two candidates which I, I was thinking as i read this like you know the way they phrased this this prayer uh what if you're the guy that loses like okay god you know everybody's heart so you pick which one and then you're not the guy that gets picked you're like oh what's wrong with my heart uh right but i like on the flip side I like oh what humility these guys have That like they are like personal pride has nothing to do with this. Like, they want what's best for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's their, when they do of one accord, this isn't like a church that kind of agrees on some things that could happen. I mean, these are people who are like-mindedly, singularly devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ to a point that pride is even found among them. Like, I, yeah, I don't care if everybody knows that Matthias has like a a more pure heart than I do or whatever for whatever reason God makes a decision like I want what's best for the gospel of Jesus Christ and I don't care what it means for me and that passion is driving them Uh, but even as they pray uh, they I think are reminding each other that Judas turned aside to go to his own place right as much as they'll say uh, in Acts and I have already said about judas's betrayal of christ happening according to the plan of god that at the same time that this is happening according to the plan of god they are clear that it in no way absolves judas of his moral responsibility for the decision that he made that judas chose to turn aside that judas is responsible for the consequences of his decision and then euphemistically maybe says and now he's in hell He's facing the consequences of his choice to turn away from Jesus Christ. And uh, while he's absolutely talking with Judas in view here, I'm going to see that theme develop through the course of the book of Acts, that they will clearly articulate the gospel, but absolutely every person who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ is responsible for how much or how little they make of it. Those who repent and respond to the Lord Jesus in faith receive a reward that we cannot comprehend while those who reject the Christ turn aside and go to their own place. And a pastoral note to those of you who, who labor with that, like, fear of having evangelistic conversations, because what if I say the wrong thing or something? Right? That while within some reason, like I could say, well, you, you did kind of say the wrong, like, you shouldn't have screamed in their face, uh, right? Like, the, if you speak the truth in love, you are not morally responsible for what another person decides to do with Jesus Christ every person, Judas included, is personally responsible for what they make of Christ. It's on them, if they choose to repent and believe or not, that do not let that fear keep you from obedience to the Lord's clear command. And at that point, they do what they know to do for almost a thousand years. Uh, they've cast lots to determine the Lord's will. Right the, the lot is cast, but every decision belongs to the Lord, Proverbs tells us. I, uh, they cast lots, and the lot comes up on Matthias, and so they decide that he is the next apostle. And so I've consulted with the elders, and that's how we're going to pick elders from now on. Uh, it's biblical, and we're country Bible. No, I did not talk to the elders about that. Uh Right? I think, though, as interesting as that might be, and uh, as much as that might prompt some interesting conversation, even this verse, I feel like should really spur us to the worship of the Lord. Right? Like, that they are on the eve of Pentecost making a decision just as they made decisions for a thousand years. Like, Oh, no, we don't know how to decide. We don't know what to do what God wants. Like, what do we know about the mind of God? Like, roll some dice. That would be a better way to determine what God's thinking than me guessing at what God wants, right? And they'll never make a decision like this again, not once through the book of Acts, that on the eve of Pentecost, they They have to trust in dice to know what the Lord wants. And with the coming of the Spirit of God, the people of God can walk in wisdom knowing that the Lord blesses for His purposes. That God enables us to have spiritual eyes, to see spiritual things, to garner understanding from the Word that we would never garner apart from God's Spirit. That we have been, all those who believe, have been... Absolutely blessed by the Spirit of God to see with new eyes. And while we'll probably find ourselves at times thinking, man, what I would give to be with the apostles, uh, I'll tell you, at this point, I would much rather be where I am than where they are. Right? That we cannot possibly comprehend the degree to which we've been blessed by the Spirit of God because we've never lived. Trying to obey God, trying to discern God's will, without the Spirit of God, that that, that in that place they are desperate, and with the Spirit of God, I, we can't possibly comprehend the degree to which we've been blessed. That, that Acts is going to challenge us in the sense that Acts is a historical narrative, that there are going to be things in Acts that are absolutely prescriptive. They're things that we should be doing as a church if we're not already doing them. But there are also going to be a lot of things in Acts that are descriptive. Luke is going to be telling us what happened at a very particular point in the history of the church, and those are not things for us to emulate today. They were transition from old covenant to new covenant, right? Like, Casting lots is not something we're going to do, as we need to make decisions together. Uh, as that's a kind of a singular point prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, where they are though Christ has been resurrected, though the gospel has been accomplished, not every detail of the gospel has been applied yet. The Holy Spirit has not come, and so they're still kind of in this transitional stage where they're making decisions as Old Testament believers would have made decisions, right? But absolutely, I think, uh, as things are described to us, even if on the whole they are not uh, prescriptive, they're not things for us to do, I think, I, I can't think of a passage in Acts where there absolutely are not all sorts of attitudes, mindsets that ought to be emulated. So, just a case through the narrative we've got lost, I want to go back to the beginning real quick and pick up on five, five things that we see in this passage evident even before the coming of the Holy Spirit that are worthy of our emulation. Number one, uh, I would say, I would suggest to you again, verse 12, they were unhesitatingly obedient to the command of Christ. They didn't say like, well, wouldn't it be better to go somewhere else? They, they went back to the, the place that they're familiar and they wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And absolutely, whether or not the, the exact shape of their obedience is something that we should emulate in every respect, the attitude of unhesitating obedience to the command of Christ should always be something that characterizes us as a church. Right? That we don't think about Jesus' commands as something we can do or we could do we absolutely think about Jesus' commands as what they are. Commands from the sovereign Lord of the universe. That they are our mission, they are our task in all things. Unhesitating obedience. Right? If the Lord tells me to share my burdens with others, It doesn't matter what it does to my personal pride, I'll share my burdens with others. If the Lord tells me to bear others' burdens, it doesn't matter how busy I am, I'm going to come alongside a brother and sister in Christ and bear their burdens. If somebody needs to be rebuked for sin, it doesn't matter if it makes me uncomfortable. I am going to rebuke them in their sin, that I unhesitatingly obey the commands of Christ, knowing that That is the only response, the only worshipful response of a person who's been given everything in and through the grace of Jesus Christ. Likewise, they are of one accord. They are one-minded. And take this as a gentle nudge, or not so gentle, I guess, is, I'm busy. Everybody's busy. We're all busy. Busy, busy. Like, I'm, I'm very, very busy. But Like, I'm incredibly convicted this week about the fact that it's difficult for us to be of one mind if we don't even really know what's on the mind of other people, let alone whether or not it's similar to ours, right? Like, that we have to be with each other and love each other well, but ultimately with each other isn't the goal. With each other to the point that we can grow to be of one mind is the goal. And Not a mind of our choosing, but like them, singularly devoted to the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what that means. That we absolutely should be people who are devoting ourselves to prayer now and always. That there is, I think, no coincidence that uh, American churches uh, seem to be largely devoid of the Spirit of God, and also American churches are largely prayerless. Those two things absolutely go hand in hand. That uh, the degree to which we are characterized by prayerlessness, I think, evidences a lack of dependence on the Lord. sin, uh, but it's also to our detriment. I think, like them we need to interpret everything through the lens of scripture just as they were looking at what they were going through through the lens of scripture we ought to be doing the same and as i said last week that doesn't mean that we try to guess at times and seasons in the way jesus told them not to do right like i don't know what's going to happen in six months i don't know if you know such and so is this and that like honestly it, it doesn't really matter i think that when I say interpreting everything through the lens of Scripture, I don't mean guessing at what might happen in 10 years. I mean, we look at our circumstances right now, today, through the lens of Scripture. When we face opposition, we don't fret about what this might mean for the future of America. We walk in confidence, remembering that our Lord absolutely promised us to expect that kind of opposition. It shouldn't be a thing that deters us from obedience to the Lord, if anything, it should be something that compels us to further obedience, right? Like, if I'm, you know, I'm 99% sure that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, but there is that 1%, like, what if, and then exactly what he told me was going to happen happens? That doesn't make the 1% grow, it makes it shrink, right? Like, we have to be people who obey the commands of the Lord and expect that, Everything Jesus told us we were going to face, if we're his disciples, we will face. And then finally, and in that pain, as they do, verse 26, trust in the Lord's leading. Second, this decision, they simply trust in the Lord's leading. And if anything, they trust in the Lord's leading in a way that's far inferior the way we're able to trust in the lord's leading we have the indwelling power of his spirit we can trust in that let's pray heavenly father god we thank you for the riches of your word and god we pray that we would be a church who trusts in your leading who would seek to see all things according to your word that we would be constantly expressing our dependence on you In prayer, trusting, Lord, that you will hear the prayers of your saints because of the blood of Jesus Christ. God, we pray increasingly that you would give us one mind, a singular devotion to the advance of the gospel as a church, and that we would be unhesitatingly obedient to your call. God, that the gospel may advance, that people who do not yet know you could find hope and redemption in Jesus Christ. And that your name would be lifted up. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.